Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, coming to you alive from the green space at WNYC headquarters in New York City. This is where we stop using technology to optimize human beings for the market and start optimizing technology for the human future, or even the present. It's not too late to make people a favored species, the subject of civilization's story rather than the objects. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, author, activist, and inaugural Gloria Steinem Chair for Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University, Naomi Klein. Naomi will be helping us figure out how to upgrade media and social activism for the age of surveillance capitalism, a world where we spy on ourselves as a form of entertainment and deliver unto our overlords anything they need to control us. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. So thanks so much for coming. This is a beautiful thing, my gosh. And it's a classy space, too. It's, I don't smell beer and anything, or hear toilets flushing and cappuccino machines going. It's, it's like, wow, it's a dedicated space for this. Um, I've been having a crazy uh, couple of weeks. We launched uh, Team Human, the book, what, two weeks ago, Tuesday? And um, it's just up and down and up and down. I, I got one day... On the same day, I got a review in the Wall Street Journal, like just outraged at this extreme view of humans and this inaccurate understanding of evolution. I, this guy is arguing that, that being human is a team sport. <laughs> what the? And they're like, this is unsupported by science. And the same day, the the head of the astrophysics department at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute wrote 
a review on NPR.org that said, this book is great, and this is such accurate, wonderful science. I'm like, who am I going to believe? The hack at the Wall Street Journal is kind of a, a nice version of the New York Post at this point, or <laughs> I got to diss them back, right? It's all tit for tat, baby. Um, or am I going to believe the head of astrophysics at, at RPI? I'm going to go with the astrophysics, because being human is a team sport. But I'm trying to figure out what is it and why is it that, that Wall Street Journal and The Economist and these you know, uh, business uh, publications, uh, why, what is it that they're not getting? And I think the problem is that they, like so many of us now, they understand human beings in terms of our utility value, our, our inputs and our outputs, our productivity, and that, that I'm arguing that there's something else and it's not even so ineffable what this something else is, this human soul, human spirit, this pre-existing value that human beings have, our, that our humanity has a value beyond it, what it accomplishes, beyond its utility. And I've been looking at what is the, what is the, the source of this or the origins of this utilitarian understanding of people, and you can go back to you know the the way we used people as slaves, you know, for for most of our history. But I really see it getting codified in the industrial age, where we started to understand people in terms of their productivity and their efficiency. When people were working on the clock rather than uh, creating things and exchanging value between themselves, when they had to go to the city to get jobs to work for a chartered monopoly. And you look at the beginnings of mass production and the way uh, uh, technology was used in industry. And it wasn't to make more things faster. It was to alienate workers from the value they created. You don't want a skilled craftsperson in your factory. You want to go to the Home Depot parking lot and get a, 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 a Undoc whatever the equivalent in the Middle Ages was of an undocumented alien and get them into your factory, train them in 15 minutes to put one nail on the bottom of a shoe so that you can get rid of them. So you don't want qualified labor. You want uh, uh, utility as cheap as possible. And these sorts of values of understanding people in terms of time and efficiency and what can we get out of them they became part of our culture, and we sort of understood, if you took Marx or you worked in the labor movement, you understood some of that. But when we moved to a digital age, all of the laws that supported this understanding of humanity, that made it hard for you to have a business or have a local currency or, or really have any autonomy at all, these laws became code. And when we move the way we regulate people from the legal system to Unix or C++, they're no longer the laws on the books. They're the laws embedded in the landscape in which we live. You can't see them. You can't even read these laws because they're part of proprietary black box architectures. So the codes by which we live, which are just as powerful and just as limiting, just as extractive as the law used to be, for all of its problems, is now an accepted circumstance. Oh, that's just the way Google works. It's just the way Facebook works, right? No, it's not just the way it works. It's the way it was been programmed to work because of the embedded biases of industrialism that now we've digitized and, and amplified. And that's troubling. That's how we can be in a place where someone who's saying, well, being human is a team sport, how that's considered, this is what the economists called extremist, remember? You're an extremist. Wow, that's an extremist. 
that's extreme, which makes me feel all, all the more important to like actually speak. If that's extreme, then we are further off course than, than I even thought we were. You know, so we've moved into an intentionally dehumanized landscape. Right, one where we see people the same way that we would see robots. That's the only reason we're in competition with them, because we don't know what we offer that robots don't, because we only understand what we offer in terms of these, really, the outputs for capitalism. You know, and, and Marxism does help us understand a lot of this dehumanization in terms of economics, but it's actually, it's actually beyond economics at this point. We are, we are yeah, we're seeing each other, we're, we're working on TaskRabbit or working on Uber, and our jobs are being mechanized in that way, and that's real. And as consumers, or whatever we are, citizens, now we're valuable to the marketplace in terms of our data. So we use platforms that, again, that are using us for, to extract data from us, and that's true. And it's true that only capital scales infinitely in the way that the world doesn't scale, which is why we have climate change, and people don't scale, which is why we have uh, Prozac. <laughs> we see how Google grows and San Francisco does not. Um, because San Francisco is a real place and Google is an abstraction, so of course we're going to end up with an exacerbation of the division of wealth. But the bigger story here is that we're using technology to play people. Our technology is no longer a tool for people to use. Our technology is an autonomous platform that uses people. Right? You use your smartphone, you swipe your smartphone, your smartphone gets smarter about you, you get dumber about it. You think you're using Instagram. No, Instagram is using you. Instagram is embedded within addiction algorithms from slot machines. Kids go to Stanford to learn how to come up with ideas like the Snapchat streak, which is more important to a 13-year-old girl than, uh, well, I was going to say her grades at school, than even her friends in the lunchroom. So people are become the medium rather than the message, right? The objects. And well-meaning techno-solutionists who have blockchains to save humanity, and evil surveillance manipulators who are developing the platforms to extract value from us, they're all treating humanity the same way. Even if they're trying to, to be humane with the technology, we're still just developing technologies that treat humans more humanely. The same way we try to treat a baby veal more humanely, right? I don't want to be treated humanely. I want to be the human. I don't want to be in a world where my technology is my caretaker. So we end up on these platforms that not only depend on treating us in this dehumanized way, but depend on us then treating one another in a dehumanized way. If you thought of the other people on Twitter or Facebook as people, then you might want to connect with them or agree with them or do something other than click at them. Look at this outrage, horrible thing. You only retweet when it's outrage, when you see the kid in the MAGA hat staring at the Native American. Oh, I hate that. You know, if you see two people looking lovingly in each other's eyes, well, who cares? Swipe. Swipe left, swipe left. Right? It engenders division in order to make us click, which is why I'm arguing, and people think this is nuts, I'm arguing that to start, find the others. Right? Find the other human beings and engage with them as human beings. See the human being in your supposed enemy 
And I know this is hard because they're assholes, right? But they're not just assholes, right? They're also human beings. Dehumanization, seeing one another as non-human, that's the prerequisite for nationalism. That's what nationalism is. Nation, nations are, right, nation states are not real. Cities were real. They grew up, or people, around, you know, marketplaces and building. Nation states were created to, to repress the city-state and transition us into this big abstract boundary line. They drew nation states. They didn't happen. They drew them. So now that we're in a world where nation states, they don't really mean anything anymore, we kind of see the writing on the wall that these are fake boundaries, what do we do? Let's build walls on the boundaries, right? To reify this abstract nothing. There's a wall here. And on the other side of the wall, those are not people. Those are Mexicans, right? Those are rapists and M13s or whatever they are. You know, the way to fight that really is to humanize everybody. But the scary part for us, at least the scary part for me and what I'm going to try to work on, is if, if you can't see the humanity in the MAGA hat guy, the MAGA hat guy that believes in the nation state and believes all this horrible stuff, if you can't see the humanity in him, then how do you expect him to see it in the Mexican on the other side of the fence? Right? Because we're all on Team Human. All right. Playing for Team Human today, award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author of No Is Not Enough, This Changes Everything, The Shock Doctrine, No Logo, and most recently, The Battle for Paradise. She is a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Nation Institute and senior correspondent at The Intercept. In 2018, she became the inaugural Gloria Steinem Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University, my friend and role model, Naomi Klein. So I wanted I want to start I, I said you're my role model which is which is true um, and at first I mean I'm a fanboy too so it's like thanks for what you do really you you cleared a path for uh, uh, social justice oriented intellectual activity which kind of didn't exist and or, or it didn't exist in a way that I could relate to until your stuff and then I was like oh my gosh I get it well, so that's thank very you very kind of you. And I'll tell you, so let me tell you about my, my tour problem, and you can help me with this. <laughs> um, so I'm on book tour for Team Human, and the great thing and the scary thing is a lot of people are coming up and saying, oh, this is great. How do I join Team Human? Like, are you going to have, <laughs> you know, message boards or meetups or a thing, you know, that, that where you say, find the others. How do I get, I want to join that thing. And I wasn't thinking to start another thing thing you know my my I was thinking of team human more like pollen mm -hmm. you know that people would bring team human into their board of ed meetings or their civics things but is it incumbent upon us at some point to start a thing did you start a thing hmm I, it's a good question <laughs> and I'm here for your career advice <laughs> um, <laughs> um I no it's a really good question I have started things um, but I think the first thing to ask oneself when deciding whether or not to start the thing is if is if you really are the only person 
who can make the thing. I'm not even and a person if there who can are try. other people who are already making the right. thing, right? Um, because I, I mean, look, I think you are already a hub, right? I mean, this podcast is a hub. People, all kinds of people are ex- exposed to people they didn't know about because you've been doing this work for so long. And and I mean, if I would say, like, think about ways to build on being a hub um, and 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 being a portal, right? Um, sending people where they where they want to go and and helping them but but do you have to be the one to organize the meetups and become yet another NGO right because right. this really is a question because the problem with the NGO industrial complex and I say this as somebody who did start an NGO called the leap I, mm-hmm. with with a, a group of wonderful people um, which is a it's we started it in Canada and it's about how to connect the dots between all these different issues. And we did it, came out of this changes everything. And we did it and we really asked ourselves, is anybody else out there trying specifically to connect the dots between movements to be glue? Because we sort of identified that there was this problem of silos, right? And what we discovered, and we you know, we talked to a lot of people within groups that we were partnered with and said, is this useful or is this, you know, is this getting in your way? And, and we got enough feedback telling us to do it that we, that we decided to do it. But the thing is, and this is a hard, cold truth, is that once you become an NGO and you have to become a fundraiser um, and, and, and you enter into the logic of branding because nobody's outside of it, even if you are a nonprofit and even if you are explicitly a nonprofit about challenging the logic of branding. We are all in this economy. And so what you find really quickly is that you're suddenly competing for scarce resources with the people you most support, right? So I would say if you do decide to to do the thing, you really need to be very deliberate about you know, how to complement the work that is out there. And and so I, it's a big question. I don't. I think I've just yeah. thrown more questions no, at you. I mean, it's an important you, one. Don't take it lightly. I don't take it lightly, but I don't want to do a thing. You know, I really <laughs> well, don't. Good. Because I don't know how to do a thing without it becoming solipsistic and kind of then trying to keep itself going. Right. And I'd rather help other things keep going, but I don't want to... And there is... So, uh, there's fantastic organizing happening in this realm, you know, whether it's your tech workers organizing themselves through the Tech Workers Alliance or coworker.org, or whether it is, you know, people who are not working in tech organizing about the impact uh, of tech in their communities, like migrant rights groups who are, who are organizing around the idea of no tech for ICE and identifying the tech companies that are selling the black box technology to this machine of deportations. And so connecting the dots between all of this relatively new activism, mm-hmm. right, with these you know broader philosophical questions. That's why I say, like, be a hub. Like, right. you know, you're having the conversations, but I think... I think there's always more to be done in, in helping people make more connections to each other and between issues. Right. I mean, yeah, because the whole point of the show was me saying, oh, I'm middle-aged now. I've kind of done my thing, and now I can use my platform to give voice to all these activists from other things. And oh, look at what they're doing. Look at what they're doing. Join this. Join that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then maybe it is a matter then of facilitating people's discovery, you know, so they can come to a, who knows, a message board or someplace. I want to you know, work with uh, domestic workers. Oh, well, there's National Domestic Workers Alliance. Yeah. Here they are. And, and that process of, of identifying commonalities, or, you know, pattern recognition, mm-hmm. and just doing a little bit of matchmaking, like, that that's, can be subtle without being a thing. Right. Without being with a... With all that infrastructure. Right. Mm. 
I mean, on a similar note, you know, when we, we first met right after 9-11, when I think it was Soot Jolly of the, mm-hmm. the, the yeah. Media Education Foundation, yeah. he did an event at Smith and invited you and me and Mark Crispin Miller onto this panel. And I gave some big impassioned thing about individuals just do things differently or don't. I gave this whole story about if, you know, when your friends all want to go to McDonald's, just be the one who doesn't want to go to McDonald's and then stand up for it. Don't give in. You know me. And then you, after that, you said, you look, you know, that's nice, but we can't really, we're not going to create the kind of change that we need through just sort of changing your consumer patterns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought about it a lot. And the sort of the, the I, guess, I guess I'm looking, how do we approach structural change as individuals? You know, and I know our individual choices. Like I can decide not to fly because I don't want to, you know, contribute to greenhouse gases and all that. But do we, do we as individuals, is it required, I guess, on some level for us to be doing more than local change? Do we need to plug in somehow to structural, structural change? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I would say yes is the, is, is the short answer. And, you know, as somebody who, who I, you know, I've, I'm pretty immersed in climate science and and that's been the issue that sort of is the, I guess the umbrella in which for me all other issues fit inside, Mm. you know, and it's true kind of for all of us. Like we are all inside the Earth's atmosphere, whether or not we're (laughs) conscious of that or not. But this is the big tent, you know, Um, the atmosphere. And and what we know from, from the most recent communication from the foremost climate scientists gathered in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change at the UN, who issued this sort of harrowing report at the tail end of last year. First of all, they said that allowing temperatures to increase by two degrees Celsius, which is what our governments had previously said, they said that is nothing remotely safe. If we want to avoid catastrophic climate change, we need to try to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And we've already warmed the planet by one degree Celsius, right? So we have a half a degree left. And we've already locked in a lot of it, okay? So what they said in this, in this report is that if we want to keep temperatures below 1.5, and this, you know, we're talking in a city that, you know, was flooded by Hurricane Sandy. So, I mean, there's a, I'm sure there's many people in this room for whom this is not an abstract issue. Um, we are already looking at that, that kind of serial flooding, superstorms, but more than 1.5, things really spiral out of control. So I don't want to get too alarmist, but we really need to hit that 1.5 degree temperature target. And to do that, we have a mere 12 years to cut our emissions by 45 degrees, okay? So that is a huge task. It is not something we can do as individual shoppers. It is not something we can do in our local communities by starting a farmer's market, which is not to say that these things don't matter. It's not to say that we shouldn't do those. We should do those things and understand that the role that they play in terms of breaking out of the mindset that doing the things that are necessary to confront this crisis mean the end of the world, right? Because what we find, and I think you you know this from your own experience, is that when we start to do those things that are actually in line with a safer climate, we actually find our quality of life improves, we have more connection with our communities, we get happier, this idea of team human becomes not an abstract mm-hmm. idea, we're actually talking to other humans, we don't need you to facilitate that, <laughs> like we actually, it's part of being in a community. Um, but. But that said, we do need 
I don't like the phrase like take it to scale because I think right. that we have this mindset that everything small needs to be bigified, right? And I think that's a big part of the mindset that got us into where the space that we're at. Like, and so I don't think it's about gigantic solutions, like taking something small and making it the same everywhere. But I do think it's about really like designing very smart policies very rapidly that lead to incredibly fast proliferations of models that will bring our emissions down to zero by mid-century. And, and, and what's really important about those local actions is that there are all kinds of local communities that have already done many of these things and they can point to them and say, you know, we have community controlled renewable energy, microgrid, agroecological farming, and guess what? Not only have we lowered our emissions dramatically, but we're more sustainable in the face of climate shocks, we're more resilient in the face of climate shocks, people are happier. I mean, so we need those local examples, but not because they're going to get the job done. Right? We need them as kind of proof of concept and showing how we can proliferate quickly. So not to scale, but definitely a really fast proliferation. But when, when nation states are the partners of corporations in disaster capitalism, then they're, they're actually they're bad actors in this. Whole oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's where I come to this from, right? I wasn't somebody who was immersed in the climate debate. I came to this, I was writing about what I call disaster capitalism, you know, back in, after Hurricane Katrina. That's when I first started writing about it. And, you know, I had covered the invasion of Iraq and seen the, the, the Bush administration use that invasion to push through their sort of wish list of free market policies. And then it started to happen in the aftermath of natural disasters, some of which were being supercharged by climate change. And it was like, okay, this is the future that we're looking at here, certainly in New Orleans, where you have, you know, a weak and neglected public sphere, um, deliberately neglected, uh, and then that intersecting with heavy weather, um, overlaid with white supremacy and Fox News, you know, animalizing the black population of New Orleans. I mean, it was it was a preview of what we're seeing now at the border, right? Right. Um, and by the way, I don't think it's a coincidence. You know, you were talking about the you know the fortifying of the borders. I don't think that's separate from what's happening with climate change. You know, I think we see a resurgence of ideas that attempt to dehumanize, animalize other people when the system demands it, right? I mean, scientific racism emerged as a way to rationalize slavery and colonial land theft. And we are in this moment when more people are on the move than at any point in human history, and there's going to be more. And we all know that, whether we claim to deny climate change or not. It is, it is in our, you know, frontal lobe at this point, right? And the fact that we're seeing this fortressing of borders in the U.S., in Australia with, you know, offshore detention camps, in Europe with, you know, allowing thousands of migrants to drown. I mean, this is, this is the way our system is responding. And the fact that we're seeing a resurgence of white supremacy and all kinds of very, very, you know, ugly ideas, it exists to rationalize this. It is to, to make it okay to let people drown, let people die in the desert. Um, so I don't think it's just about understanding right. each other, Doug. Like, I mean, I really think we have to understand that we are at a fork in the roads, you know, for humanity. And we have to decide if we're going to be human in the face of this crisis. Um, and so and this is a really core question because climate change 
within our current capitalist system will monsterize us. We're headed towards climate barbarism. Did you think this was gonna be a cheerful conversation? I thought we, um, you know, so, but this question of are we, are we humans? Are we gonna treat each other like humans? Like that is so pressing given that we've locked in a really rocky future, right? Are we gonna, are we gonna not believe that these borders matter, right? Are we gonna understand that our fates are connected? Um, it's a really important time to, to decide that, right? Because de facto, a lot of people are deciding the other and going like, no, we're, we're hardening in all kinds of literal and you know, non-literal ways, right? Right, I mean, that's why I see my work now. It's almost like a, a, a social psychologist in some ways or, or mass propagandist to try to promote uh, humanism. You know, to try to, if, I figure it's a prerequisite for dealing with any of these things is that yeah. people engage with one another as people. We can't forge solidarity with people that we don't see as, as fellow people. But we also have to talk about the systems that are producing the crisis that then needs to be rationalized with these ideas because there's a reason why we are seeing a resurgence of these ideas now. Um, right. And, and it, it, you know, slavery demanded white supremacy. Like if you're, it, you know, colonialism demanded it. If you are going to grab people's lands and turn their bodies into property, you need a system of hierarchy of humanity that that makes that okay. Right, because you're right. still a human being, and you've got to justify it to yeah, your to right. your psyche somehow, or you'll see yourself as a sociopath. So, I mean, not only do we have to do we have to you know engage with structural change, but like we really need to talk about the underlying systems that are producing these ideas. And and so, yeah, you said the state are, is a bad actor. It's a very bad actor, but <laughs> I think that. If there's anything to be hopeful about, it's that there, there's a shift going on where there, there's a new cohort of politicians that have, I think have gotten into this for the right reasons, that understand that this is a project of shifting cultural values and are proposing a Green New Deal, you know, which is the first response of my lifetime in the face of the climate crisis that is on the scale that the science demands. Um, so, I mean, it but may be- The Green be New Deal happens through cities and localities more than nation states though, doesn't it? You know, the sort of distributed solutions that are appropriate and local. I mean, it feels like, you know, rather than going to the UN and trying to get them to agree on something, if people actually cared about climate change, then we'll do it in New York and Chicago and Memphis and, and Miami and, you know, and then there'll be a, a huge diversity of solutions, which is maybe more consonant with nature. And, and, you know, there is no one size fits all industrial age solution to climate change. You know, they want to throw iron filings in the ocean or mm -hmm. sulfuric acid in the, in the sky. It's like, oh my gosh, just wait until the unintended consequences of one of those comes through. Yeah. I mean, I guess for, for well, I agree some with of you us, that it feels so hopeless. To, right. to go to go national with it, to go... Well, I don't think national is leading. I think cities are leading. And we are seeing the most innovative responses in cities, you know, from like Paris right now, which is building a huge amount of affordable green housing, um, you know, and also which, you know, when they're having a smog crisis makes the subways free because it turns out when you have free subways, people want to ride them. I suggested this to your mayor. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so the, the cities are, are, are workshopping this, are finding, you know, are, 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 there are labs, 
but I I can't quite go there with a sort of let a th you know let a thousand flowers bloom model because I do believe that while the best ideas need to be coming from where we live, where we generate energy, where we move ourselves around, where we live in buildings. Absolutely, cities matter a huge amount. It has to be coordinated because there really is a limited amount of atmospheric space and there are targets that we have to meet. So I'm not ready to write off the UN. I'm not ready to let national governments off the hook. But I do think that if we think about a Green New Deal, it needs to be as decentralized um, as possible with clear targets, right? Like, so I think that, um, you know, a, a national government can set targets, like we are going to get to 100% renewable energy by 2035 or whatever the target is. Um, how we get there is a question that is, you know, it, we are gonna leave to localities. We are gonna put incentives in place that encourage community ownership that transition closed factories that were producing you know, fossil cars, for instance, which are closing anyway, um, and we're gonna turn them into, I mean, there's all kinds of incentives that you can put in place to encourage the transition to, uh, I mean, I would like to see green worker co-ops as, as much as possible if, if I were designing the Green New Deal. But if we think about the old New Deal, which was tremendously, you know, not problematic isn't a strong enough word. I mean, it excluded African-American workers. It excluded domestic workers. It excluded agricultural workers. About a million Mexicans were deported, you know, in those years. So we have to be really, really deliberate if there's going to be a Green New Deal, that it's a Green New Deal for everyone. And in fact, the people who got the worst deal under the extractive economy, you know, who have the dirtiest industries in their backyards um, are the first to benefit from this transition. Um, so I think that there can be some core principles, but the, the extent to which the old New Deal worked, it was really iterative, it was improvisational. You know, you started one thing, like for instance, the Civilian Conservation Corps, right, which was this project that ultimately employed two and a half million people um, and or actually it employed three million people and they planted two and a half billion trees, which mm. is half as many trees as were ever planted in this country, right? So this was poor kids from cities that were sent out to first plant trees, then when the Dust Bowl intensified, um, to deal with soil erosion. And they also did, you know, when you go to a national park, a state park, and you use a facility or you walk a trail, chances are that it was the Civilian Conservation Corps that built that infrastructure, right? And so it's a reminder that the, the original New Deal was not just dealing with an economic crisis. It wasn't just the Great Depression. It was also an ecological crisis. This country was in a, a severe ecological crisis. Um, but it just started off small, and it worked so well that it expanded, right? So I think the idea that there is one Green New Deal and it's going to be you know, emerge fully formed um, you know, from Congress is an absurd idea. But there, ha there has to be a sort of an improvisational, we're going to try a lot of things quickly, see what works, and roll it out as quickly as possible. I mean, the thing that makes me optimistic is, in some ways, it's so bad in so many different places and ways that each one of those, each one of the tendrils of uh, industrial capitalism is another opportunity. So, you know, oh, worker-owned co-ops. So now all of a sudden you're a worker-owned co-op, you own the business in your locality, well, you're going to stop polluting because your kids are drinking the water, you know? So it... It's like it feels like almost any starting point is a great one to to start to un unravel this the nightmare. Right. And I mean, I think that what's 
there's a few things that are exciting about it as a framework. Um, and you know, I, th I think it's worth reading Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's um, you know, original resolution, which talks about this as an opportunity to end poverty, virtually end poverty in the United States. Um, and it's a recognition that, that we live in this time of multiple overlapping crises, and they're all urgent. Um, the rise of fascism is urgent, um, and gender inequality is urgent. And so we're not, you know, we have often played this, and this comes back to the silo question of, like, my crisis is bigger than your crisis. Mm -hmm. And there is this really terrible history among white environmentalists to just to be like, you know, look, first we'll save the planet, and then you know we'll deal with racism and poverty and all that other stuff, right? Because we don't have a lot of time, right? And really using the scientific deadline that we're on, and the which is real, you know, and the urgency um, as a way to silence people um, and to create this hierarchy of crisis. And you know what's exciting about I think the way Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and and others and the Sunrise Movement you know, have framed this building on decades of work by the environmental uh, um, justice movement and the climate justice movement is that this is truly intersectional. We, we, we have to multitask, right? The things that lower emissions have to fight economic inequality, have to fight for racial justice, you know, have to fight for gender justice. So like things like let's redefine a green job so that it isn't just a guy in a hard hat putting up a solar panel. It's also, um, you know, the person taking care of your kid at daycare because they don't burn a lot of carbon and they actually improve quality of life a lot and they're probably paid a terrible wage, right? Um, so let's, let's, let's redefine art as low carbon work. The entire caring economy is low carbon work. Let's invest in that. Let's have abundance in that because we are going to have to contract the consumer economy because, you know, look around the city like consumption is out of control, you know. I know, the buildings are still going up. But I feel like all the money's going up into them, or the laundry is being laundered up in there. These are basically laundromats, yes. you know, 90-story laundromats. Thank you, Mr. Trump. York. Yeah, well, it's a way. <laughs> and, you know, and as you talk about AOC and about uh, uh, climate change, I'm thinking about uh, Fox News, which I've been watching a lot. In my effort to empathize, that's what happens when you go on tour, humans. right? You turn on Fox News and hotel rooms. In hotel rooms, yeah. yeah. But I really, I watch, there. I watch Trump. I watch them trying to understand how is the human being there. How are they feeling? I know what they're saying is wrong, but what are they feeling? What on what misunderstandings? <laughs> this have led is like to this? some meditation technique. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, um, who put you up no, to this? No, it's bad for me. I know it's bad for me, but <laughs> but. They're, they've got to come along. If that 30% of, I mean, they have, they just did a thing last night about how the liberals keep changing the words for climate change because it's all fake, you know, and now they call it extreme weather, <laughs> um, you know, because they're, they're running out of terms because they know it's not real. And oh my God, and 30% of Americans are, are being told this by, by a, a channel with billions of dollars. And, and I think I want to infiltrate their world. And then I start thinking about what you're talking about, the New Deal and the WPA and going, I mean, this is why the, yeah. I got this idea for a theater project. Like, let me get local theaters in red states doing stealth lefty, you know, the whatever the Clifford Odets of the 21st century would be. Get them to do these plays without knowing it's leftism. Yeah. And, and, or get them doing mutual aid because it just, because they need the money and they need, so teach them about how to create a local currency or a favor bank in their town so they can start. And then rather than speaking to them ideologically, just if do they, something, right. put on a show. 
Put on a show. Yes. Start a, a yeah. soup kitchen. Plant some trees. Right. I mean, this is what FDR did. I mean, he was very deliberate. He looked at the map, looked at where he was weak in rural America and, and cited Civilian Conservation Corps projects in those communities. And they liked him. They created jobs. It was good for their communities. And, you know, he was very political about it. But the other thing is, like, people meet, you know, that sense of common cause, that sense of mission. Um, you know, I, like, I'm a little bit skeptical about our ability to connect across huge ideological divides in the abstract, like right. just sort of like I am sitting down with you and we're going to try to co- overcome this massive divide. But I actually have a lot of hope about people's ability to overcome divides in common labor, in common project, um, when it isn't mediated by Fox News, right? Uh, and 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 so it, to me, it's like it's less about the you know the, that deliberate face to face encounter than you know who you happen to be doing something alongside. Right. So then it's even like, let's not have a meeting about this. Let's just get together and restore our public park or almost like r- rather than the idea and then the project, do the project and then meet your meet your your friends. You I know? think so. I, th- I mean, I, that I think that's where I've made most of my friends is doing things together. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I may be. I think, and I, and I guess I do believe that we sometimes focus on the people who are absolutely hardest to convince and feel hopeless about that and forget that there are so many people who are really not that far gone and really have just given up hope, right? right. I, I really don't believe that humans are good because they've been told that, right? I mean, you, this comes back to the review that you mentioned, right? I mean, there really are, there, there, there are some very powerful opinion makers who have spent the past, you know, half century telling us that all we are are selfish, you know, self-interested automatons, that we cannot be trusted, that when we try to do things together, terrible things happen, right? I mean, this is, you know, this, I often quote Milton Friedman's letter to Augusto Pinochet um, after the coup when he said, the biggest mistake, in my opinion, is when governments got the idea that they could do good with other people's money. Um, And it is this idea that, you know, when we try to do things together, you know, the gulags happen, right? And it's just not true. We are able to do amazing things together. And people know it. I mean, look look at the Los Angeles teachers. Um, and the way L.A. came out for their teachers because they believe in public schools and they know they can do things, you know, they, they know that it is actually possible to love children who are not your own, you know? Um, and, that was, and that was just so beautiful, seeing the firefighters out for the teachers and, and, and lo and behold, you know, it's, it's, it's possible to do good things with our pooled money. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's hard because... Of the, uh... I feel like a lot of Americans have lost their understanding of basic civics. And I was at a, a I was at a board of ed meeting a couple of years ago in my town. Someone got up and said, "I don't understand if I don't have kids in the school system, why I have to pay the school tax." I was like, "Oh wow, where do we where do we start?" You know. I know. And did you resist saying because it increases your property values? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. That would, that would be the easiest one, right? Because it would increase your property values. Because, yeah. you, because right, because, oh, we'll, all right, you stop paying school tax and we'll take away your Social Security. How about that? And we're done. All right. You know, that's every, every man for himself. It's a, I was uh, interested in, in 
the way you you've twice now brought up kind of our our legacy of slavery, and I hear the word enslavement used a lot now um, about digital technology. Mm-hmm. That now all of a sudden everybody, oh no, now we're slaves of Facebook and slaves of this and digital slaves of the digital robots. And in some ways it seems awful, but on, on a certain level I feel like even privileged white males are starting to experience themselves as indigenous to the planet. You know, there's, there, we're all indigenous on a certain level. And now they see that, oh, wow, I get it. I get what it's like to have to be treated like something that's less than human. I get what it's like to have this value extracted. But it's still all of the treatments I see of this, especially in films and popular culture, it's always, oh, you know, the robots who we enslaved are now coming back to get us. And it's like, it feels there's just some shade of unacknowledged slavery of where this country actually came from. Very recent history, as if uh, it somehow feels like there's some recognition of our our uh, history of enslavement of black people that has to be acknowledged for us to move on on a certain level. Well, I, I I feel the same way about all all of those films that that where where the 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 robots that were supposed to just serve us rise up and try to kill us. I mean, it is it's it's obvious what is going on there. Um, you know, I I don't believe we move forward without looking backwards. I I think we 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 have to do them both simultaneously. And I do believe that part of why it is so difficult in this country, in particular but not just this country, um, but it's something common to a lot of settler colonial countries like Canada, Australia, you know, why we see high levels of, of just real resistance to doing anything about the climate crisis. It is different from Europe. I mean, I think there's a lot going on, but one of the things is like the idea of being a country that was like a do-over country for Europeans, right? Mm-hmm. And you think about where we are, like New York, right? And, you know, people just think that's kind of normal. Like, well, let's just, we found another New York. Let's just call it New York, you know? Um, yeah, and and it, there are so many of those, you know, like I'm from Canada, we're from New France, right? And it's just like, look, like Europe hits up against its ecological limits and then goes and quote unquote discovers this seemingly limitless continent, right? And you know, all of the sort of early explorers, the, 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 the descriptions of just the endlessness, the seeming endlessness of nature, whether it's you know, the cod that were so thick they stopped the boats, you know, or the trees that we, we, ne- we will never, ever, ever run out of trees again. Um, you know, or I mean, look, my Canada was 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 a, a a corporation before it was a country. It was the Hudson's Bay Company. It was all about beaver pelts because guys in England liked you know top hats made of beaver pelts. It's a ridiculous reason to be a country. It really, really is. <laughs> and um, and they had hunted all the beavers in Europe, right? And they're like, there's so many beavers here, right? We declare that we own all of it, and and so. Um, but I think that this idea of a do-over country, of a reboot country, right? Because because Europe was an ecological crisis. I think that makes that makes these cultures particularly averse to looking backwards, because the whole idea 
was the idea of, of another chance, like of always getting to start over. And I think that that's this, this, const, this obsession with like that turning the page. We can't look back. That's ancient history. Like even if it's something that happened like right. five years ago. Rear view mirror. Know? That's where <laughs> yeah. the exhaust pipe goes. Yeah. You know, we're just going to stare forward and drive and progress. And Yeah. So I don't, yeah. I don't like, I, I don't, I think it goes, it go, it's so much a part of these national mythologies of settler colonial countries that until we look at how that idea has failed us, like including with ecological crisis, like it's such a threat to say actually there are limits when the whole point of your country was that you were supposed to be limitless, right? Um, mm. Is, you know, if we don't dig into, into these mythologies, I don't think we get out of where we're at right now. Um, so we have, you know, we have to not be afraid to tell new stories about who we are and who we want to be. And um, I actually find that really exciting. I find the idea of re reparations exciting. Like I find the idea of building an economy around the idea uh, around care and and repair really exciting. And I think those are two incredibly key concepts. We have an e we have an economy built on endless extraction. You talked about the extraction of labor endless extraction of resources, like the, the economy of, of, of taking and trashing, right? Like I take what I want and then I throw out what I don't need, whether it's you know carbon in the atmosphere or whether it's workers I no longer need. And I never think about the consequence. That is our <laughs> current paradigm. And the care and repair ideas, like you know, there are these parts of our economy that we can build out, right? And, and and that we have a lot of work to do just cleaning up the messes we have made. Just the, like, the, the messes we've made of our natural world. Like, we could have a job boom just cleaning up abandoned oil wells just right. and tailing ponds. I mean, it would be huge. Like, there's a lot of jobs in solar, but just cleaning up is a ton of work. And you barely need to retrain workers because the, the workers who actually made the mess already know how to clean it. It's just they won't get paid to clean it. Right. And so there's that. And then there's also the repair of our relationships, right? And, you know, that's the sort of, I know you get into yeah. Jewish theology a little, but it's a beautiful idea. And I, we're so afraid of that idea of repair and reparation. Um, and because we're guilty about what we did. We don't want to look back. We're afraid of that. And we think that there's no redemption. There's only, I mean, we've got this more Gnostic mm -hmm. urge to mm -hmm. just get out of your body and get your mind on a silicon wafer <laughs> rather than... <laughs> you know what I mean? Engage yeah. with 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 karma, you know, or whatever it is that we that we did. I want to talk about your your new work, and, and particularly in in relation to your older work, like going from from no logo to no is not enough, is is really interesting to me because in no logo you had the seeds of what happened. I mean, I don't know if you knew that those were the seeds at the time, but... I could never have dreamed. <laughs> but but in a sense, I mean, and just not to bash on Trump necessarily, that's always nice, but, but, but Donald Trump as the no-logo president of a sort. Do you know what I mean? It's like we were talking uh, in the green room, too, about, like, he isn't a YouTube star, but he is the YouTube star. That this is, you know, I looked at it that, that the liberals went into fictional television, like the West Wing and Murphy Brown, and the right wing took reality television, and reality television television took over, mm -hmm. and and this the sort of the, the the branded self runs our country now is our president. Yes, 
Yeah. And he got that. He got that early. He got that in the 80s that he was playing himself. You know, he said the, the, he said the show is Trump. He told, he told that to an interview. The show, is, the show is Trump and it's sold out everywhere, right? So he, he understood that even when he was still kind of a conventional builder in New York City, but that the reason he was on the cover of all of these magazines and he was being turned into a celebrity, I mean, part of it was just the zeitgeist. I mean, he sort of personified the 80s. But that he was he was putting on a reality TV show before there was a reality mm. TV show. He was doing it with his affairs, right? And people were addicted to that reality show before there were reality shows. So no wonder he's so good at reality sh television. And then and now we're all in in it in the show. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what there is to say. I think reality TV has a lot to answer for, including our you know, the normalization of surveillance. Right. Where you have now generations of young people who, you know, grew up watching people who were attractive and, you know, fun to watch, being completely okay with having cameras in their bedrooms and, and you know, their bathrooms and being under surveillance all the time. That was the trade-off, right? started they got with famous. real world and exactly. everything else. But right. yeah, you became a star that way. That's, and yeah. if anything... The, the whole beauty of it, like you look at Paris Hilton, what her show was about was that she couldn't actually do anything, right? She went week <laughs> after week. She went to try to do different jobs that she failed at every single time as if that makes her celebrity all the more pure because she can't actually do anything, right? She was just a celebrity. Mm -hmm. And now, though, I mean, even then, though, there was some effort by the counterculture or cool culture to not be discovered and packaged at the mall. That you try to be too grotesque or too this or too that. But it all ended up, well, now it's at the point where the kids, rather than trying not to be noticed, are desperate to be to be noticed. It's, it's not even surveillance. It's self-surveillance. Self-surveillance, yeah. I mean, what's interesting, I mean, for me, for those of you, and I, I'm sure lots of you have never heard of No Logo, but it came out... Um, now, 20 years ago, it'll be, it's almost exactly 20 years ago. And it was about the rise of lifestyle brands. Um, these companies that decided, and they were the sort of forerunners of all of this, that they were no, that they were not actually in the product business. They were in the ideas business. Right. So she would, yeah. As she would say, you know, it's like Nike's not selling sneakers. They're selling... Transcendence through sports. Right. You know, and, and... Or we're not a yeah we're not a sneaker company we're a sports and fitness company whatever. Um, but this was the era where you, you know there was this crisis in brand value, and then a few companies got it like they got that it's it was not about stuff it was about ideas and once you honed that idea that identity then you could stamp it onto all kinds of stuff and build this branded cocoon which eventually Trump was able to do. Uh, you know, he started off building building, but now he just sells his names, right? That's what the whole Trump Moscow, you know, scandal is about. He was selling them his name uh, for millions of dollars, which he built up, you know, through all of those years and then had this incredible platform of The Apprentice. Uh, and that, and then he was able to have Trump water and Trump steaks and the rest of it, right? And then um, had the tremendous <laughs> platform of a presidential campaign, exactly. which was only, I mean, which that, was only supposed to be a yeah, marketing campaign. Exactly. But, the, but I think what, what the trajectory that I find really interesting is, you know, the idea that we're all supposed to be our own brands, right? I mean, it started right. off with Michael Jordan. He was the first sort of human super brand, right? And then he found himself in competition with Nike. And then you had all of these celebrities going, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be. A, 
my own super brand and branch off into all these things. And then it was like, but now everybody has to be that. But it, in a way, I think that was really a bait and switch because it actually doesn't make any kind of economic sense for everybody to be their own brand. There are really only a certain number of brand identities. There are now millions of people whose brand I identity is authenticity or, you know, I'm just me or something like that, you know. We've definitely maxed out on brand identities. But, but that promise, right, that is inseparable from the gig economy and economic precarity, and I mean, this is something that we talk about a lot in my, my class. It's like you talked about people feeling like they're, you know, enslaved by these technologies. And I don't like slavery very much as a, as a metaphor right. like that. But I do, what I don't like is the addict, like of seeing it purely through, through the lens of addiction, because that implies that it's just kind of all in our head, and it's all just because these guys went to Stanford and figured out how to dupe us by, you know, whatever, the right dopamine. What, it's partly that, but it's also partly that people are terrified of their economic future. They think that this is, they're gonna disappear. They, you know, that if they are not out there, if they're not keeping up, like it, it's fueled by, t by raw terror and it's fueled by raw economic terror, right? So there is a political economy to that addiction that the addiction's real, but it's not powerful enough in itself. It's also our fear that this is the only way you're going to possibly get ahead is if you are constantly, you know, broadcasting your own personal reality television show on all of these channels simultaneously, you know. Instagram and YouTube and well, because when the kids know. go for a job, particularly in your social media marketing or something, they they first thing they ask is how many how many followers do you have? Yeah, because the company is not hiring the kid; they're hiring the kid's social network. But the extraordinary thing is that the reason why I say it's a bait and switch is that yes, a shocking number of people will actually be, get paid to be Instagram influencers, yeah. right? But overwhelmingly, most people will not. It's right? a lottery, yeah, and, and a lot. And most people will engage, you know, in what you know some communication theorists call like hope labor, aspirational labor, right? Um, so what they're doing is they're working for free for these brands, hoping that one day they'll get paid to be an inf a, a, a Instagram influencer, right? But they're providing free advertising in the meantime. Um, but the point is, is that in order to ho hopefully be the one that to make it, we are we are performing ourselves nonstop. And there are all ki kinds of downsides to that, including commodifying your friendships and your most intimate relationships, et cetera. But it turns out that the real product, as you said, is just the data, right? So we, th we thought, we were told we were building our own brands and we were so unique and we were all little snowflakes and we all just had to find out what our brand advantage is. But really all that matters is just that we're constantly posting and sharing. Um, and God, right. I, I hate say, that they've taken the word share. But yeah. yeah, and they say, you know, and we used to say, you know, as a, as the bad thing, oh, you're the product. But it's like you at this point, you could wish you were the product, right? No. right? You're not even the product, right? No, no, no. It's like that would be a that would be a a, a serious uh, upgrade. You to, are a minor data set. Yeah, I mean, and and, <laughs> and economically, uh, ironically, I mean. Advertising and marketing and brand research and all that has never accounted for more than 3% of GDP. So now the entire NASDAQ stock exchange is somehow depending on the data that people are producing on Facebook and Instagram. It's not that valuable. I'm not sure, though. Like, I, I, I mean, look, we may be looking at a bubble, but I don't think it's just about, well, well, you know, it's not just about 
advertising. Right. Advertising is a piece of it, but every industry in the world is trying to figure out how they make use of this data. Everybody wants a smart device, and it's you know it's it's revolutionizing the insurance industry, healthcare. So I, the advertisers were ahead of everybody else in figuring out how to use this data um, and market it, and you know extract value from it, but. I think the idea is that absolutely everybody's business model has somehow figures out how to use this data. Um, yeah. I mean, speaking of everybody's business model, uh, uh, and maybe this will be the last question, and then I want to bring the, bring the, everybody who's here into this. Um, we just witnessed a, a different kind of Davos mm. than we've seen before. I mean, on those one, one level, you know, BlackRock is there with the same letter he puts out every year saying, we're not about money, we're going to be about helping the world and all that. But they finally entered into a conversation about taxes and uh, about the kind of corporate philanthropy that they're doing. Do, do you think that we've reached kind of a peak corporate philanthropy and that they're, they're actually willing to discuss structural changes to the way that they're taxed? Well, I don't know about them, but we are, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think they, I think the solution to Davos is shut it down. I mean, I don't think Davos is, is redeemable. Um, but I think the, the important thing is that enough people have had it with this idea that our problems are going to be solved through the goodness of the hearts of, you know, philanthropic capitalists. And you see it in the backlash to Schultz's, you know, maybe presidential run. I mean, people, and, and this is, you know, what I said and know is not enough about Trump. I mean, Trump is, is a mirror. He is a mirror holding up, you know, the dystopian image of our society. And, you know, he, the only reason why he could make a presidential run and say, vote for me, I'm a billionaire, is because the ground was laid for him by you know, Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg, and nobody more than the Clinton Global Initiative, Davos here on the Hudson, right? Mm -hmm. Where you know, you'd have this annual confab where it would be like, okay, we've got our you know, billionaires, many of them made rich because of the deregulatory policies mm -hmm. of the 1990s aided along by Bill Clinton. Am I losing the room in New York no. City? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> no. I know it feels sometimes. a little more BAI than <laughs> NYC, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you you've got all this extra money sloshing around the global economy. Not all of it can go into you know gilded condominiums in New York City. I mean, some of it can go to like saving the school system in Newark, right, through charters or so on. Or build, um, mosquito poison mosquito nets for uh, Africans to use as fishing nets. Oops. Right, and yeah. so you've got the celebrities that that you know ha like bring the veneer, and the, and the government saying, okay, well we've got this problem. Do I have a taker? You know, <laughs> and it's kind of like au you know, auctioning off the earth. And so it's not. It hasn't worked. It actually brought us Trump. And so now the, the fact that people are so fed up with it and are ready to talk about things like taxes and don't want to talk about philanthropy anymore or how much Michael Dell gives to his family philanthropy, um, you know, even pierced the bubble of Davos several times, which I thought was quite, quite you know, exciting. Yeah. We've got 10 minutes for uh, engagement. If anybody has a, a question or for especially for for Naomi here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. So my question is about free will. And I wonder, there's a thing about human nature where people react when things are really, really bad. So when you try to make change for the good, but people are not suffering just yet enough, how do you handle that? Mm. 
we've often had this sort of narrative in the in the climate movement that you know we're like frogs in boiling water and 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 that there hasn't been that you know leaping moment and and that's why we haven't done the things that are necessary look i think a lot of people are hurting a lot of people are hurting and i think there have been a lot of moments where people were ready to jump and for various reasons the lid got put back on you know i think after sandy this city was ready to jump i mean i you know, the number of people who have been choking on wildfire smoke, not just in California, but all over the West. And not just this year. I mean, from year after year after year. Um, Puerto Rico, between three and 5,000 people died. That's more than died on 9-11. So like, I don't know what we're waiting for with this idea that things have to get bad. They're bad. They're really, really bad. And I think that the problem is has so far been a lack of vision and that lack of a clear common plan that says, okay, this is what we're doing, and this is, this, is, this is what you can do to plug in. And my hope is that in the next few months, a, a really clear vision of what this Green New Deal is emerges, and that any candidate who wants to run on a progressive platform in 2020 has to fully endorse it, which doesn't mean just saying, I support a Green New Deal, and it's whatever I mean it is. I, you know, I want, it, want it to mean. And, then, and, and you know, then that becomes policy in 2021, and we roll up our sleeves. And in the meantime, we do everything we can in the cities um, where you know there there is a supposedly progressive government. Yeah, I was just wondering, and thank you. That was really great, both of you, <laughs> um, and loved all your comments about sort of activism and what do we know next. I'm wondering how the critique of social media and the digital world and all that comes in or combines with the other things you said about making change and how we get human and stay human but still have the advantages, obviously, of this technology. I mean, Facebook could have been okay if it didn't have to pivot into a full-on surveillance platform. You know, there was a moment when it was only when he had only earned a couple of billion dollars on it that if he could have said enough, but he couldn't say enough because of the 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 capital structure of the company. So he had to you know provide a hundred x return and to make it a hundred x more extractive than it was. It couldn't just be uh, a nice platform. The the beauty right now is that you could build Facebook for like ninety three cents. I mean. I'm sure there's probably more than three people in this room who have the programming chops to put a Facebook and let it scale by itself on on Amazon or something. So it's like, like it's so easy. There, there. I think someday we will look back on the supposed entrenchment of Facebook the way we we look back now on AOL. Oh, they're never going to take down AOL because everybody's going on with them. No, I think mean, I think it's I think unlike Google. Or, or Amazon, who have technologies. Um, Facebook's leverage, I think, is really, is really small. And then if people are really going to leave, then, then they would have to change. But I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the platform is bad in a lot of what it does. But w sometimes when I see the way Facebook's being used, say, in Africa, as people's main way to get online, the way that um, even blockchains being used in India and Africa for microtransactions and people to uh, keep the money away from uh, spouses who will beat it out of them, um, you start to see, oh, wow, you know, where people actually need uh, uh, technology to do something, these things can work. You know, for us, uh, 
we don't really need Facebook in the same way. You know, it's not it's not uh, or orchestrating our our economy. But uh, now, I mean, I'm I I left Facebook personally, but then I realized I'm privileged enough to be allowed to do that. You know, and it's not and and it's Facebook is is, is the least of my worries. It's the algorithms that are being used by judges to determine prison sentences and that are using you know, prison recidivism as the main metric. And it turns out that's a racist metric because they're not looking at who commits a crime but who got caught for the crime and that's gonna be a black person. So you end up creating a feedback loop and then nobody even knows the code because it's proprietary. And so, so it's the, sort of those loops that I'm more concerned about. And it's not about just learning code, it's about um, uh, understanding that we're embedding values into these platforms and rather than seeing them as sterile. Well, first of all, thank you. This has been fantastic. And so I'm actually a Queens College professor, by the way, Doug. Hi. And I, and I actually study climate changes of the past. And so, um, you know, what you were saying in the beginning is, and relating it to poverty and, and the power, um, you know, basically corporations have been ruining everything, starting from tobacco to lead and the oil, the gas and everything. So, so how do we combat that at this point? They seem to be so powerful. Just a little question there. Um, look, I mean, I think if we were starting from scratch, we'd be in big trouble. But I mean, it's worth remembering that there is there's a, a huge shift that's going on. And we don't know how this is going to work out. I mean, I, I think look, our chances aren't good, um, but there is still time, right? And I'm amazed, you know, when I see audiences of like The View cheering for a 70% marginal tax rate, you know? I mean, something is changing. Uh, and and the, the question is, you know, whether or not in this very short window it manifests. But I would say that the, 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 the hold on the ideological... Um, you know, boundaries of acceptable discourse has just been lost. It's just been lost. And maybe we have Trump to thank for that a little bit. I mean, he he's breaking rules right, left, and center. And so there's sort of a little bit, somehow, a space to get some good ideas there, too, maybe? I don't know. There's one of your students had a question. Was there? Oh, yeah? Oh, no. There? I no. just saw there was a hand back there. Hi, good evening. Um, I'm thrilled. I lost my voice. It's okay. You make Doomsday so sexy to listen to. <laughs> I'm like, yes, my sister. It is over. It is. No, it's not. Thank you. So I'm producing. Can I use that as a blurb for my book, Jack? Use it. Use it. Use it. Um, so I'm producing a podcast called Black Issues Issues about a fictitious magazine about black issues that never is on deadline because there's so many issues that affect black people. So I had two questions. One, we mentioned earlier about how to acknowledge um, slavery and not just slavery, but also today is a 20 year anniversary of Amadou Diallo's death, 41 shots for a wallet. Right? So that's one thing. Not just slavery, but what continues to happen for 400 years mm -hmm. in this country. Um, and then two, the notion of branding when it comes to politicians, like larger than Trump, there's also Kamala Harris, there's also Cory Booker. Like to what degree are they woke washing? Meaning they seem like they care, but then when you look at their record, NPR uh, reported that Cory Booker receives more money in corporate donations than Mitch McConnell. Mm -hmm. 
And for big pharma, right. Yeah, yeah. So those, those are both really great questions. Um, and, you know, this is a moment like, uh, where we, we, we need to weave narratives together, right? While at the same time, understanding that it can't just turn into one big mush, right? Like there's, there are dis distinct histories that have to be at the center of a just transition. And this is, you know, one of the one of the questions earlier about will people, you know, will, like will people act before they're hurting? So many people are hurting, right? And you know, when it comes to the environmental movement, there's been this uh, this assumption for much too long that you know, this is sort of like, you know, the issue for people who don't have real issues to care about, you know. Um, it's sort of a luxury issue. That's not the way it's seen in the environmental justice movement, which was all about, you know, how, the fact that kids have, you know, kids in poor communities and communities of color overwhelmingly have way higher asthma rates, higher cancer rates, all kinds of respiratory illnesses, right? Um, but when you have a movement, a response to climate change that is about improving people's lives right now, like not avoiding catastrophe off in the future, but uh, but, but improving lives right now um, and improving the lives of the people who are hurt the most, people will fight for those policies, right? You end up with a fighting movement in a way that we actually have been missing. Um, that urgency that I think, you know, we're always going, where is it? Where is it? Where's our self-protection? We'll see it. And, you know, we saw it at Standing Rock um, when people were fighting for their water. And every time there's an indigenous-led resistance, we see it. Right? People are fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their water. They're fighting for their kids' future. Right? We fight differently when we're fighting for that. So woke washing, um, very important question. You know, I think we, this is going to be a really important few months for investigative journalism. And I think we have to challenge ourselves to just like not respond defensively. Like I've, it's, it's, I mean, I, I, I may have to just get off Twitter for this you know, election cycle, because it's just people are responding to, you know, journalists just just finding facts, like how much money a certain candidate took from a drug company, and it's being treated like a personal assault, you know, and, and so we have to, we have to, to be able to do that. And this is, this is, you know, part of why I keep coming back to like, what is the Green New Deal? If we focus a little bit more on the actual platform, if it comes from below, if it comes from movements, if there's real buy-in, if there are town halls across the country, and what comes out of it is, is it really has, and let's use all the, all the you know, tech tools as well as face-to-face -to, -face to get that process, that buy-in, then it's less about the candidates than, than the platform itself, right? And we also need mechan mechanisms of accountability to hold politicians accountable to the policies that they ran on, right, which we don't have yet. Um, my hope is that, you know, I, once the policies become very clear and very tangible, and it's not just a slogan, right, um, that it will be clear who can be trusted most to carry those policies. And nobody can simply be trusted. You know, everybody needs to be held accountable and pushed. Well, we're out of time here, but I want to thank you for making our lives better right now. I mean, thank I you, think everybody you. feels that. <laughs> so thank you, Naomi Klein, for playing on Team Human, as well as your decades of tireless advocacy of human autonomy, social justice, and collective intelligence. You can find out more about Naomi's latest work, including No Is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics, and Winning the World We Need, and The Battle for Paradise, Puerto Rico Takes on 
the disaster capitalists at NaomiKlein.org. You can also find links to her work and that of our all our guests at TeamHuman.fm. Articles based on my monologues can be found on Medium, along with annotated archives of all of our shows. We'll be back here at the Green Space on March 4th with an author of Zucked, Roger McNamee. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens. Our community manager is Michael Bass. Our virtual futurist is Luke Robert Mason. Our associate producer is Josh Chaplin. Team Human is produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. Thanks also to Cameron Tompkins and everyone at the Green Space for hosting this event. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.